All right, take your Bibles and open them up to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, uh, we're going to be looking at verses 34 through 36 today. If you have one of our uh, handout Bibles, it's on page 877, first book of the New Testament, first of the four Gospels. We're in week four of our series where we're taking a look at our values here at Redeemer, things that we consider as vitally important to the life and ministry of this church things that we want to give particular emphasis to as we grow together in dependence upon Christ and confidence in Christ and help each other connect the realities of the gospel to the realities of our lives. You'll find these values, again, listed on the handout that we've been putting back there on the table uh, each week. And so if you don't have one of those, I want to encourage you to get one of those and, uh, and read through some of these other scripture passages that are associated with these values. You can read through that devotionally this week and Think and pray over those things. Our mission, our vision statements are on there as well. And then uh, the Titus 2, 11 through 14 or 11 through 15 is really our foundational verses as a church. And so all of those values sort of are de- derived even from that overarching principle that we find in those verses. Now the value that we're going to be looking at this morning is, is uh, a double word, right? Or, or, or at least a word combo here, focus and passion. So Here's the question, right? What should our, the direction and the drive of our lives be? What is our focus and passion? To answer that, we're going to look at the, an exchange between Jesus and some Pharisees in chapter 22 of Matthew's gospel. Now, Matthew was a Jewish tax collector who was driven, who, whose passion and desire was for personal gain. And that led him to extort his own people on behalf of the Roman government and But then when Jesus called Matthew to follow him as one of the 12 disciples, Jesus changed the focus and passion of Matthew's life forever. Matthew wrote his gospel primarily for Jewish Christians in order to show them how Jesus is the Messiah that the scriptures pointed to and in order to show them how the gospel reorients the lives of all who follow Jesus. Now this morning through Matthew's account, we're going to hear out of Jesus' own mouth what our lives should be all about. This is a question we can ask and actually get a direct answer to. And so we'll, we'll dig in. I want to pray that the Lord opens our ears and our eyes and our hearts to receive what he has to tell us. Father, we thank you for your word, that it's faithful and true because it comes from your mouth. And we pray this morning that as we hear your word through your son and through your disciple Matthew, that you would help us as disciples to receive it with gladness and joy, and humility, and trust you. Seek your, the power of your Holy Spirit who lives in us to obey this fully as we keep our eyes fixed on Christ who has fulfilled every command perfectly on our behalf. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we tend to, to focus our lives around things that we're passionate about, Right? I want you to think for a minute about some of the things that you're passionate about. What are things that you find yourself talking with others about, right? If you've ever had a conversation with, with me for more than five minutes, I've probably told you about coffee or bird watching, right? And maybe even as we're talking, like, I might for, like, ignore what you're saying because I hear a bird behind me and I'm trying to figure out what it is, right? The things, yes, you know this. Um, the things that we're passionate about tend to drive the focus of our lives, right? We, we, we get sort of narrowed in on these things, and we start to organize and orient our lives around these things. 
And, and there are a lot of things that, that we can be passionate about. There are a lot of things that we can be focused on, actually to the glory of God. But Scripture is very clear that God's glory is the thing, the ultimate thing that drives our passion and focus, right? And when we seek to glorify God, we'll find that uh, the, the drive and the focus to do that, the ability to do that is actually wrapped in love itself. So here's what we're going to hear. Here's what we're going to see from uh, Matthew's gospel this morning in chapter 22. Here's our main point. The focus and passion of our lives ought to be to love God wholeheartedly and to love others sacrificially. The focus and passion of our lives ought to be to love God wholeheartedly and to love others sacrificially. You maybe say, yeah, well, that's, that's nothing new. I've heard this before, and it's a fairly simple and straightforward directive, right? And yet I think all of us can recognize that that's far easier said than done, right? And so this morning we're going to see uh, through an interaction that Jesus has with some Pharisees how this is even possible for us to do. And we're going to start with these two greatest commands uh, that, that Jesus tells us about. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 22. We're going to start in verse 34. And for this first part, we'll just go through verse 36. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together. And one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him. Teacher, which command in the law is greatest? Now, the Sadducees were a group of Jewish religious leaders who held strictly to the teachings of the first five books of the Bible. The Torah, the law of Moses, it had several names um, but these were the only books that they considered authoritative. And so they rejected the other writings in the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures. And as a result, they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead because the Torah didn't actually explicitly talk about it. Right before this, they were in a debate with Jesus and they were trying to disprove the resurrection using a law from the Torah that Moses gave about divorce or about marriage. But Jesus proved the resurrection and silenced the Sadducees by quoting from the book of Exodus, which was in one of the books that they gave authority to, was in the Torah, and he showed them that God is the, the God of the living and not the God of the dead. Now, the Pharisees were another group of Jewish religious leaders. Maybe we're more familiar with them. They held to all of the Hebrew scriptures, a.k.a. the entire Old Testament. That was their Bible. And they also held to their own traditions and their own interpretations of those scriptures. Now, scribes were experts in the law. We might think of them as, as lawyers, right? They were the ones that would, who would often preach in the synagogues according to their own interpretations of these scriptures. And they would often pull in the, the traditions of the elders and, and the scribes and the Pharisees and things like that. Not all scribes were Pharisees, but many of them were. And the Pharisees and Sadducees didn't get along with each other. And so after the Sadducees were silenced by Jesus, the Pharisees thought, hey, it's our turn. We can swoop in now and get a one-up on, on the Sadducees, and we'll test Jesus ourselves. And so who better to send in to test Jesus than your very best? We're going to send in a scribe, an expert in the law. And he's going to deliver this question. Which of the commands is greatest, right? When the scribe asked Jesus, which one in the law is the greatest? He was telling Jesus to choose the most important one out of 613 laws 
that they had in the, the Torah, commands that were found in the Torah. His question wasn't out of the ordinary, though. Jewish rabbis and teachers of the law believed that all 613 commands should be obeyed. It wasn't that, like, which ones can we leave out? And yet, they were always dis- debating about which of the commands carried more weight than the others. For example, they would consider the commands prohibiting murder as, as heavier, weightier, more important than the commands on, say, tithing or things like that. And so the scribe was asking Jesus which of the commands he thought carried the most weight. Like, hey, jump in on the conversation here. Weigh in, so to speak, right? Now, Jesus' answer then wasn't out of the ordinary either. Look at verse 37 through 40. He said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. Now, that first command that Jesus quoted comes from a passage in Deuteronomy. You may be familiar with it. It was a passage of Scripture that was extremely well-known, not only to the scribe, but to every Jew. It was commonly referred to as the Shema. Now, Shema is a Hebrew word that means listen and obey, right? It doesn't just mean, like, take it in. Here, it means, it means listen and do, listen and follow, Obey. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5 says, Listen, Shema, Israel. Listen, Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. This became a prayer that the Jews prayed every day in the morning and in the evening. This was on their minds and on their hearts all day long. The Shema is a call for Israel to be completely devoted to Yahweh as the only true God. Our God is one. He's the one and only, right? And to worship him and serve him alone above all else, everything else, and everyone else. It's a call to remember God's covenant love and faithfulness to them, and then to respond in covenant love and faithfulness to God. It's a call to a intimate relationship with the Redeemer, the Creator. It was so important that it was to be integrated into every part of their lives for every day of their lives. Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9, the the following verses say this, these words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Find them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your city gates. Since the Shema is a command to be totally devoted to God in all of life, it's easy to see why Jesus immediately offered this command up as the greatest one. And and the, the scribe would probably most likely agree with that. This was the most important command but then he took it one step further and he, and he attached another command to it, right? He, he, he went further and connected this total devotion to God with love for one's neighbor by quoting from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And then he told the scribe, listen, all the law and the prophets, all the law and the prophets depend on, literally hang on these two commands. So we can think of like a, a two door hinges, okay? 
if those, the two door hinges would be these two greatest commands and all of the rest of the commands of Scripture would be the door that, that pivots and, and hinges or hangs on those hinges. All of the, the door is in the commands are, are driving us to these two things. Jesus quoted only part of Leviticus 19.18. Rabbis would often only quote part of the verse to get their students to think of the rest of the verse. And he's implying the whole thing here. And it says this, Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against the members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is really important too. The commands that God gives in the Old Testament we, we should go through, and, and sometimes this would be something, this would be a great exercise for us to do, right? As we read those, see how many times as God is giving those commands that he says, I am the Lord. Just reminding you of who I am, the one that's giving you these commands. But he's the Lord who brought them up out of Egypt. This is what he says right before he gives them the, the Ten Commandments, both to the, the group that uh, disobeyed him and, and turned away from him and were died in the wilderness because of it, and to the new group. Actually, in Deuteronomy 5, right before the Shema, Moses gives the Ten Commandments to the new generation of Israel because the old generation forgot it. I am the Lord, he says. This command is in a section of Leviticus that begins this way, Leviticus 19, 1 and 2. The Lord spoke to Moses, speak to the entire Israelite community and tell them, be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Ooh. Now that's got some weight to it, doesn't it? Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now as an expert in the law, the scribe would have been very familiar with these passages, would have had them memorized and, and, and that, that Jesus was quoting here, and he would have had their surrounding context memorized as well. He would have understood where these were coming from. But we need to keep in mind the surrounding context of this interchange between the scribe and Jesus. Right before this, in Matthew's gospel account, Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey as a fulfillment of uh, one of the messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. And then he went into the temple and he threw out the merchants and the money changers and he overturned the tables because they were making it difficult for the Gentiles to come in and worship and pray to the Lord. The Pharisees had already been looking for a way to arrest Jesus and have him put to death while they tried to maintain their appearance of holiness. They knew it said, be holy because I'm holy, but boy, that was, that was they were doing a lot of dirty stuff, weren't they? They tried to maintain their appearance of holiness. And so Jesus' words here to this Pharisee who is a scribe were especially weighty. And to show them that it's not just enough to know what the commands are. Listen, you can have this whole thing memorized. Essentially, it was what Jesus is telling him. But Jesus turned around and asked the Pharisees a, a question that they had to answer. Look at verse 41 through 45. While the Pharisees were together... Jesus questioned them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? They replied, David's. And he asked them, how is it then that David, inspired by the Spirit, calls him Lord? The Lord declared to my Lord, 
Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how then can he be his son? Keep going, verse 46. No one was able to answer him at all, and from that day, no one, decla- no one dared to question him anymore. Now, the Pharisees understood, along with the rest of the Jews, that the Messiah would be a royal descendant of King David, a son somewhere down the family line. But Jesus quoted another passage here that would have been very well known to the Pharisees. It was one of the most important messianic passages in all of their, their Hebrew scriptures and all of the entire Old Testament he quoted Psalm 110, verse 1. And he, sh- and he did that to show that David himself understood something about the Messiah that the Pharisees completely overlooked, that they were missing altogether. David didn't say, the Lord declared to my son. The Lord declared to my descendant. What did David say? He said, the Lord declared to my Lord. David was the king of Israel. The, the highest human authority over God's people. And yet, as he looked forward to the Messiah who would come from, from his own family line, the Holy Spirit directed David to submit himself to his future descendant. Now, this is only possible, this, is, this only makes sense if this Messiah was not merely human, but also divine. In other words, the Messiah would not only be the son of David, he would also be the son of God. And Matthew opens his gospel by listing the genealogy of Jesus, including the line through David. He calls Jesus the son of David. That's one of Matthew's favorite things to call Jesus in his gospel. And here Jesus was alluding to the reality that as the Messiah, he's not only David's descendant, but he is also David's Lord. Remember what God said to the people? I am the Lord. Jesus is saying this right here and now to this scribe who's a Pharisee. So let's put all of this together, right? If Jesus is not merely a human descendant of David, but he's also the divine Lord of David, then that's what, or, or then that means that Jesus is the Lord God whom the Jews were commanded to love with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind, all their strength. It means that the Shema points us directly to Jesus Christ. The Pharisees didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, let alone the fact that he was God. They certainly didn't believe that. And as a result, they failed to keep the greatest and the most important command. They weren't even keeping the second most important command. Instead of loving their neighbor as themselves, Jesus as their neighbor, the Pharisees held a grudge against him. And they sought to take revenge against him because he exposed their hypocrisy. They completely disregarded Leviticus 19.18 altogether. In Matthew 23, Jesus told the crowds that the scribes and the Pharisees didn't practice what they preached. They taught one thing, which actually was the right thing. They taught the law of Moses, but they didn't actually live it. They burdened others while avoiding work themselves. They did everything to be seen by others. They loved the place of honor at banquets, the front seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called rabbi by people. They loved titles. But Jesus said that they were shutting the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. He called them blind guides who gave more weight to commands about tithing than they did to commands about justice and mercy and faithfulness. 
He said they were concerned with the outward appearance of righteousness, but on the inside, their hearts were full of greed and self-indulgence and hypocrisy and lawlessness and every kind of impurity. These people who would declare out of their mouths that God demands, be holy as I am holy, were about as unholy as they come. It was under the appearance of righteousness and adherence to the law that these scribes and Pharisees and chief priests coerced the Roman governor into crucifying Jesus. These religious leaders of Israel failed to love God with all their heart, soul, and mind, and they failed to love their neighbor as themselves because they loved themselves with all their heart, soul, and mind. Now, it's pretty easy to throw these these religious leaders, these scribes and Pharisees and chief priests under the bus because their sin is so obvious, right? I mean, you could go read chapter 23 in Matthew's gospel and it's just, woe to you Pharisees, woe to you Pharisees, woe to you scribes. Jesus is calling them out left and right. We get to see all of their stuff. The reality for all of us is that it's often far easier to recite these two great commandments than it is to obey them Right, And that's true because just like these hypocritical religious leaders of Israel, we too are prone to love ourselves more than we love anyone else. These two commands are the greatest and most important because they're inseparably linked with one another. You see, love for others flows out of love for God. And so when we fail to love our neighbor as we should, it's because we are failing to love God as we should. We fail to love God as we should when we insert ourselves into his rightful place in our hearts. This is why we give our spouse the cold shoulder when they don't do or say what we want and expect from them. It's why we get angry and impatient and yell at our kids when they aren't listening to our instructions. It's why we badmouth our boss or our teacher when we don't want to listen to their instructions. It's why we get mad when our friend doesn't return something that we let him borrow. It's why we get excited when someone from the opposite political party gets called out for something they did wrong. It's why we love to put people we disagree with in their place, not not have a conversation with them, but we love to just talk about them on the internet or, or inside conversations with other people. It's why we justify our dehumanization of others in the name of truth See, when love for ourselves is our top priority, we make ourselves God at the expense of others. And we break the two greatest and most important commands in all of Scripture. And when we've broken even one of these commands, we've broken all of them because every command in the Old Testament and the New Testament hinges, hangs on these two commands. If our goal as believers is to, is to read and understand what Scripture is saying and then apply it to our lives, you know what the, 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 the most basic and yet the most profound summary application of all of Scripture is? Jesus just told us right here. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Everything we find in Scripture falls into those two categories, including the Ten Commandments themselves. We'll never be able to love our neighbor as we should until we first love God as we should. But we'll never be able to love God as we should with sin-corrupted hearts, right? 
even if we want to, even if it's our desire, it, that desire wanes because we still tend to love ourselves. This is why God himself became a human and came into this world. See, as a man, Jesus lived on this earth in complete and perfect devotion to his heavenly father. As a man, Jesus loved the Lord his God with all his heart, all his soul, all his mind, all his strength. He kept every command of the law perfectly and never sinned. He fulfilled the law of God that we failed to keep. And this sinless one perfectly loved his neighbor as himself by dying on the cross for sinners who hated God and loved themselves, including me. I'm one of them. As a man, Jesus is able to be put to death on the cross. Why? Because human sin requires human death as payment. As God, Jesus alone was able to be the perfect, unblemished sacrifice that was required to pay this full price for all of our sin, to completely remove all of our guilt, and to secure our forgiveness once and for all. And then he rose from the dead so that we could live forever with God and God's people in perfect love. In perfect love. It's only through Jesus Christ that we can actually live out what God intends to be the focus and passion of our lives. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind as, and to love your neighbor as yourselves. When our faith is in Christ, that means that his Holy Spirit is in us. And Romans 5, 5 tells us that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that he's given to us. How about that? God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that he's given to us. That means that God's love is in us because God himself is in us. He's given us new hearts so that we can love in uh, the way that he loves. In the Bible, love always shows itself. It's always revealing itself in some way. It's never merely a feeling or an emotion. God's not just calling us to, to feel something towards one another and, and towards others and towards him. He's calling us to show something. Love is always active. Biblical love always involves drawing near to others in a selfless way. Listen to how the Bible actually tells us what love is by telling us about God's love. John 3.16, we know this one. For God loved the world in this way. He showed us. John's telling us, he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Romans 5.8, but God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now at work in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, as others were also. In other words, we all loved ourselves, right? Verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. 1 John 4, 9, and 10. God's love was revealed, shown among us in this way. 
God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins, or some translations say the propitiation. Jesus is the one that steps in and, and shields us from God's righteous wrath, takes it upon himself and turns God's wrath away from us. That's what propitiation means. Is that not love? Isn't that not incredible love? Do you know this kind of love? You only know this love if you've come to know and depend on Jesus Christ. You cannot know this love apart from him because Jesus is the full and complete expression of God's love. There is no greater love to be found anywhere than else than the, the love that God has for us in Christ. And here's the beauty of God's love. It comes with promises like Romans 8 that tells us when we're united to Christ by faith in him, neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You don't want that... Don't you want that kind of love? Don't you want that kind of love? Scripture is very clear how we receive this love. We turn from our sin and we trust in Jesus. And when we do that, we'll know this love, not just for a little bit. But God pours his spirit into our hearts and then he pours his love into our hearts through his spirit so that we know this love for all eternity. Now, if you know this love, God has called you to show this love to show this love to others. And you will want to show this love to others because God's love in you flows out of you to people around you. 1 John 4, 8 says, the one who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. In other words, if you know God, then you know love. And if you know love, then you'll show love. Our love for God is, is, is uh, displayed most often in our love for the people around us. The end of 1 John 4 says this, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and yet hates his brother or sister, that person is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him. The one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. Now, what does that last verse sound like to you? To me, it sounds like Jesus' words, Jesus' words right here. These two greatest commands, the most important commands that Jesus gave to the scribe, right? We could say it this way. The one who loves the Lord his God with all his heart, all his soul, and all his mind must also love his neighbor as himself. We can't keep one command without keeping the other. It's not possible. When we realize that, that the command to love our neighbor means not only loving our brothers and sisters in Christ who are called to love us in the same way, to actually return that love to us, but it also means to love our enemies who hate us, and it also means to love strangers who don't know us, then we begin to realize just how much grace that we need in order to keep these two great, greatest and most important commands because we still wrestle with wanting to love ourselves to do that first. I think Paul Tripp captures this tension well that we all feel. If you get his Wednesday word, 
uh, weekly email. You may have seen this little poem that he wrote in uh, this past week's email. It says this, It seems like being called to loss, a costly personal sacrifice, a dangerous life decision outside of a reasonable life plan making you wonder, what about me? It's a radical counterintuitive call. The contrast between God's plan and our plan is stark. However, the two great commands welcome you to the only place where true freedom, lasting happiness, sturdy peace, long-term contentment are to be found. It is that garden of peace where every human being was meant to live, meant to know true shalom of the heart. The two great commands don't call you to loss. No, they invite you to incalculable gain. In living for something bigger than you, by divine grace, you are liberated from the idol of idols, the idol of self. You are liberated from the sad, disappointing, dissatisfying dysfunction of demanding too much too often from the people and things around you who will always fail to deliver. Shrinking your life down to the narrow confines of your wants, your needs, your feelings never produces the life of peace, joy, contentment, rest that everyone craves. There is glorious freedom, lasting joy in living an outward, other-centered, other-serving life. When your heart is consumed by love for God and love for others, it is freed from that unhappy place of bondage where everything is about you, where there is a myriad of offenses every day, where there are no little wrongs, where the emotional pain of constant disappointment paralyzes, where anger and bitterness haunt. The idol of self is a liar, never delivering what it promised, following each lie with another promise. It keeps you hoping for what will never be. However, the two great commands welcome you to the only place where true freedom, lasting happiness, sturdy peace, long-term contentment are to be found. They are given to you by a God of grace who knows you, loves you, wants you to thrive. He calls you to things you would not choose for yourself, not just for his glory, but with a generous heart. He calls you to them for your good. See, we live in a culture where the focus and passion is the individual self. It's a culture that's constantly saying, what about me? What about me? It's a culture that shrinks the focus and passion of your life down to the narrow confines of your wants and your needs and your feelings where you set up yourself as God and demand that everyone else love you with all their heart, all their mind, all their soul, all their strength. And it's a culture that lives this way because it's, it's a culture that doesn't know the liberating love of God in Jesus Christ. We can sit here and we can condemn this culture or we can go out into this culture with the love that we know. Jesus has freed us from that unhappy place of bondage and shown us a better way to live. He's given us a new focus and passion that is for God's glory and for our good He's called us to a much better kind of love, an actually true kind of love. It's not a selfish love that demands. It's a selfless love that gives. It goes beyond feeling warm fuzzies. It's giving a cup of cold water to a stranger who's thirsty. It's inviting a friend over for a meal. It's a gracious response to an angry opponent. 
It's lending without receiving or expecting repayment or thanks. It's setting aside our personal agendas in order to prioritize God's agenda. It's humbly submitting ourselves to God's word and joyfully committing ourselves to God's people. It's worshiping the Lord in song and in the everyday, mundane, seemingly mundane things of our lives by doing all things for his glory. It's communing with God in prayer. It's sharing the gospel with the people that he puts into your daily path. It's all these things and so many more. Even though we can summarize everything down to these two commands, we need the full uh, 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 counsel of Scripture, the Old Testament and the New Testament, to understand the love that God has called us to. Every command in this book, start to finish, Genesis to Revelation helps us think specifically about what this love looks like in action. But the whole Bible also shows us what this love looks like in person. And that person is Jesus Christ. Just as every command in the Bible depends on these two greatest and most important commands, so our lives depend on his life. And our love depends on his love focus and passion of our lives ought to be to love God wholeheartedly and to love others sacrificially. Yeah, it's easier said than done, right? But the God who is love has given us everything that we need in order to love as he loves. We love because he first loved us. And so may we live freely in his perfect love and may we love freely with his perfect love. All for his glory and our good. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we can only say that because we, we marvel at your love for us, the transforming work that Jesus Christ has done in our hearts and continues to do through your spirit. And Lord, we pray that until Christ comes and we are with him fully, complete, where we sin no more, Father, would you guard our hearts through your spirit, by your word, together with your church, that we might seek to love you and to love our neighbor more than we love ourselves. That you would give us deeper, lasting joy and peace in the love that you have shown us to, uh, in Jesus Christ. And that you would enable us to boldly love others by bringing the truth of your gospel, the grace of your gospel, the love of your gospel, to give them Jesus Christ himself as we have been freely given Jesus Christ himself. Lord, we pray all these things for your glory. Teach us, help us. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.